Mark Twain once said that history never repeats itself, but the kaleidoscopic combinations of the pictured present often seems to be constructed out of the broken fragments of antique legends. Now, what the fuck could that possibly have to do with the topic of this video? Oh, maybe nothing, maybe everything, who knows? Uh, stick around and find out on today's episode of Categorical Imperatives. Hey, greetings and welcome back once again to Categorical Imperatives. As always, I am your seditious host, Lockheed Liberal, and I do want to thank you all for joining me here today. And if you are new to the show, I especially do want to welcome you. This is a podcast where we are going to be using legal theory and moral philosophy to discuss current events in law, politics, and culture. And just real quick, if you guys dig what I do here and want to play an active role in helping me to develop the channel and to reach more people and to have an even richer discussion about law and philosophy, I would greatly appreciate your help, uh, especially over on my new Patreon page where for just as little as two bucks a month, you get all kinds of extra goodies uh, from a show notes page to a guaranteed topic request uh, and more. So if you are willing and able, I would be very grateful for your support. And if you aren't in a place to do that right now, that's all right. I still appreciate you coming by and spending some of your time with me, whether you're a brand new viewer or a longtime subscriber. Now, there is a word that has really become increasingly popular ever since January 6th, when, or, or ever, excuse me, since Trump was elected in 2016, and that word is sedition. And I would say it's since January 6th and the storming of the Capitol, Sedition is a word that seems to be thrown around all over the place now. Just to give you some idea of how much this word is being used, Merriam-Webster's Dictionary reported on January 6th that there was a 1,500% surge in the number, number of people searching for the definition of sedition. And on that same day, the term also spent a good part of the day trending on Twitter. Now, since we recently uh, marked the anniversary of the passage of the Sedition Act of 1918, this seemed like an opportune time to look back at the causes and effects of the past sedition laws, uh, especially when we consider that uh, John Brennan uh, recently had absolutely no compunctions about singling out libertarians as a group of people no longer deserving of their civil liberties. And since, uh, as this episode is going to show, these laws are always most vigorously used, to silence people advocating for peace in a time of war, and no group is more consistently anti-war than libertarians, this too does not augur well for us. And even if you are not a libertarian, uh, to this, there will be a lot for you to love in this episode. There's a lot of good history. I, I'm not specifically writing to libertarians. That's just kind of where I happen to lie. But uh, yeah, this is still an interesting episode, I assure you. So anyways, moving on. Uh, what we are going to be doing today is looking at the way the Sedition Act of 1918 was used by the courts to discuss why a common belief that this was repealed is a misconception that is at best only partially true, uh, and that it is continuing, in fact, to be weaponized today in several of the most egregious abuses of power in modern times. Now, going back to the early days of our republic, then, 
I will be showing you how the Jeffersonian Republicans were so swiftly and successfully uh, able to make the Alien and Sedition Act of 1798 a nullity, and then we will be discussing why the sedition is in fact one of the most American of all values. Now, the first thing to note is that the Sedition Act of 1918 was not a complete act in and of itself. It was actually an amendment to the Espionage Act of 1917. Uh, now, that act had been passed as a wartime measure that, uh, as the name would suggest, sought to prevent uh, support of the United States enemies during wartime, but it did so much more. It had a number of provisions that were much more akin to sedition than espionage such as any attempt, even indirectly or unintentionally, to that would prohibit uh, with or interfere with military operations, recruitments of soldiers, or foster insubordination. Now, the Sedition Act was an amendment to Section 3 of the Espionage Act. This broadened the scope of prohibited speech uh, and even expression of one's own opinions. It forbade the use of, and I quote, Disloyal, profane, scurrilous, or abusive language about the United States government, its flags, or its armed forces, or that caused others to view the American government or its institutions with contempt, end quote. Now, those convicted uh, under this act generally receive sentences of imprisonment for anywhere from 5 to 20 years. Now, while many people mistakenly believe uh, they identify the Espionage Act and the Sedition Act as separate legislation. Uh, thus, they think the repeal of the Sedition Act in 1920 was a repeal of wartime sedition laws. In fact, it was solely a repeal of that expansion of Section 3. That means that the Espionage Act's initial provisions, which were often tantamount to sedition laws, remain good law to this day. In fact, you can find them uh, under 18 U.S.C. Chapter 37, uh, Section 792. Now, during World War I, the Wilson administration prosecuted war critics under the Espionage Act as a means to silence them. In 1919, the Supreme Court considered the constitutionality of three sedition trials that we will be discussing in a moment. But before we get to that, Having had to mention Woodrow Wilson's name, that can only mean one thing. It is time for us to play everyone's favorite game show here on Categorical Imperatives. That's right. It is time once again for Woodrow Wilson. What a dick, right? Now, the rules are simple. I am going to list a bunch of actual things that Woodrow Wilson is responsible for doing that will make it clear why he is the most despicable piece of garbage to ever be shat out of any mother anywhere on U.S. soil, therefore forcing us to grudgingly uh, admit that he is an American citizen. And then I will throw in one fake terrible thing that. Uh, somewhere in this mix here and the first person to come up with the guess for which is the fake terrible thing is the winner now all you have to do is be the first person to put the correct answer down in the comment section below and first place will win 
this handsome autographed picture of Woodrow Wilson. Unfortunately, it was autographed after his stroke, so his name is fairly illegible and worthless, just like him. And second place will win this handsome picture of Woodrow Wilson proudly sporting his Nazi regalia that he loved so dearly. All right, number 96, the 16th Amendment. That is right. Woodrow Wilson is the douchebag who looked at the Constitution and thought to himself, you know what's missing? A constitutional amendment to make armed robbery not only legal and constitutional, but respectable. All right, awful thing 812. Wilson the recalcitrant racist. Now, we tend to think of the period between the end of the Civil War and the 20th century civil rights movement as an awful time for black people, and it was, but there were periods of both significant improvement and degradation. And from the end of the Civil War up to the Progressive Era in the North and in territory controlled by the federal government, things tended to actually get much, much better, at least relatively speaking. There was a good amount of racial integration in jobs and schools and public areas. That is, of course, until Wilson uh, got into power and decided to reintroduce segregation all across the country. Many blacks whose uh, economic station had been steadily improving found themselves demoted to worse work and lower paying jobs or just lost their jobs entirely because of him. Many uh, blacks in higher education were simply kicked out of school. Uh, Wilson even said uh, well, he had the temerity to say when speaking to a civil rights activist, a leader of the NAACP, he said, segregation is not a humiliation, but a benefit and ought to be regarded by you people as such. Now, until his dying day, he made excuses for the morality of slavery, saying that the domestic slaves were uh, all under the master's eye, very happy and well cared for. He also hated him some Asians, too. He said, uh, as for the Chinese and Japanese coolie immigration, I stand for a policy of total exclusion. An influx of Orientals will give us another race problem to solve, and surely we have had our lesson. All right. Awful thing number 18, that time that Wilson pulled a weekend at Bernie's. Now, for some of you out there who may not remember, there was an awful movie uh, from the 1980s that was known as Weekend at Bernie's. Now, the premise is that these two employees are invited to their boss's home. Uh, they arrive to find he's dead, and for a bunch of stupid reasons not really worth discussing, they decide that they need to do whatever they can to convince people he is still alive. Is while they're checking in. Forget the accident with the two guys. The Carol Lomax. Bernie Lomax will be checking out. Oh my God! What kind of a host invites you to his house for the weekend and dies on you? I don't know. Lomax told whoever he's talking to not to kill us if he's around, right? Yeah, yeah, but Lomax is dead. He's not around anybody yeah. anymore. <laughs> I know that. You know that. Nobody else knows that. Huh? It looks good enough. Let's go. Uh-oh. Larry, what? Huh? Oh. 
<laughs> really? Hi, Bernie. Hey, Bernie, just like last week, huh? Oh, Bernie, you animal, you insatiable. Doesn't anyone realize he's dead? Roll the boat! Hold the boat! Vito, I'm telling you, Lomax is alive. It's just Bernie! Weekend at Bernie's. Are we doing it again today? Oh, absolutely. You know we are. Great. We'll see you later, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, ladies. We'll see you later. <laughs> is this great or what? Now, uh, for the final 27 months of his presidency, uh, that's over two years, Wilson had been completely immobilized and half-dead, uh, the left half to be specific, following a severe stroke. And rather than seek medical attention or even admit that anything had happened, Wilson's wife uh, and a doctor that she had hired to make sure that he was loyal to her and not to, you know, the president or possibly the government who he was supposed to be running at the time, um, that essentially during this whole period, over two years, there were only two instances where anyone other than his wife and his doctor saw him. Uh, one was a state visit that had been planned by the King of Belgium that really could not be neglected. And the other time was following a congressional hearing where members of Wilson's cabinet had to admit that they had not seen or talked with the president in 17 months. It was really like a scene from a cheesy 1980s movie of Weekend at Bernie's uh, because while the King of Belgium saw him for only five minutes, uh, after that congressional hearing, uh, you had his Secretary of State and Senator Henry Cabot Lodge uh, both insist that they must come in to see him. And his wife essentially propped him up in his bed, uh, covered the paralyzed left half of his body with a sheet, lowered the lighting in the room so you could not see the paralyzed side of his face, uh, and uh, he barely kind of somewhat incoherently tried to force out a few nonsensical words. Uh, for example, when Henry Cabot Lodge said, you know, we are all praying for you, sir. The whole nation is praying for you. The only thing that Wilson could say was to kind of whimper, uh, which way? So uh, you may be thinking to yourself, this sounds like it probably wasn't his fault. And he was the victim of his wife's conniving power grad. And that is a plausible uh, belief except for the fact that in this state, Wilson had active even planning and been very adamant about trying to run for a third term. So what a dick, right? Next, number 201, Al-Qaeda and 9-11. So that's right, Woodrow Wilson was a member of Al-Qaeda. And if you look closely at this very real and not doctored fake photograph of the 9-11 hijackers and keep your eyes peeled for the circle jerk, by which I mean, of course, the jerk in the circle, you will see that Woodrow Wilson is in fact two of the 19 hijackers involved in carrying out the 9-11 attacks. I don't even know how that's possible, but Genuinely fake photographic evidence doesn't lie. And this brings us to the final thing for today. Terrible thing 914, the Espionage Act. 
This is where Wilson xenophobia, racism, warmongering, and contempt for civil liberties and for limited government all came to a head when, in 1916, during his re-election bid, he won with 52.2% of the total votes, and he eked out this win on a campaign promise whose official slogan was, he kept us out of war. Then, three months after the election, he got us into World War I. And when the very people who voted for him said, wait a minute, uh, this is the very thing that we voted for you not to do, that's kind of fucked up, Wilson demanded that this Espionage Act be passed, uh, which it was, and which he then immediately used to start going after anyone who failed to support his abortion of a decision to get us into a war that we had absolutely no business fighting in. And he decided to lock all of those people up that were largely even his own supporters and voters. So anyways, those are the topics for today. Let me know down in the comment section which one you think is real and which one is fake, and I will see you again next time on the next edition of Woodrow Wilson, What a Dick, right? And the first case we're going to look at today is Shank v. United States. Now, in this case, the defendant circulated literature arguing that the military draft violated the 13th Amendment. Shank had urged people to resist the draft. The Wilson administration charged him under the Espionage Act with obstructing recruitment and enlistment services in the United States when the United States was at war with the German Empire. Now, Schenck argued that the prosecution violated the free speech clause of the First Amendment. Justice Holmes, writing for a unanimous court, upheld the prosecution. He explained that during ordinary times, the defendant would be permitted to oppose the draft. However, the character of every act depends on the circumstances in which it is done. Next, Justice Holmes offered a very famous analogy that is often entirely misspoke and misunderstood. When he said, quote, the most stringent protection of free speech would not protect a man uh, in falsely shouting fire in a theater and causing a panic, end quote. Notice he referenced falsely shouting fire in a crowded theater. Uh, so, it, it, you know, implying that therefore it is perfectly okay to shout fire if there is actually a fire, uh, making his point about the different circumstances under which something is or is not okay. Now, five decades later, the Supreme Court effectively overturned this standard in Brandenburg v. Ohio, holding that the government cannot forbid or prescribe advocacy of the use of force or of laws violation, law violation except where such advocacy is directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action and is likely to incite or produce such action. Now, Justice Holmes uh, then offered another famous test when he said, the question in every case is whether the words are used in such circumstances and are of such a nature to create a clear and present danger that will bring about the substantive evils that Congress has a right to prevent. 
He says that here, these circumstances were dire. And when a nation is at war, many things that might have been said in time of peace are such a hindrance to its efforts that their utterance will not be endured so long as men fight, and that no court could regard them as protected by any constitutional right. Therefore, Schenck's prosecution was constitutional. And of course, to this day, clear and present danger is a very memorable phrase. But in the 1920s, it was merely a colorful term for what is actually known in law as the bad tendency test. Now, this test allowed the government to ban speech if the natural and probable tendency and effect of a publication are such as are calculated to produce the result condemned by the statute. Now, under this relatively deferential test, the defendant's criminal intent is inferred from the speech's tendency to lead to violations of the law. Now, five decades later, though, the court effectively overturned this test with what is known as the Brandenburg test, which found the government cannot forbid or prescribe advocacy of the use of force or of law violation except where such advocacy is directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action and is likely to produce such action. The next case we're going to be talking about here is Debs v. United States. Now, this is a case from 1919, and Eugene Debs was the socialist candidate for president. He gave a speech advocating for socialism and declaring the war against Germany was unjustified. He, too, was prosecuted under the Espionage Act. Uh, Holmes wrote, uh, in his opinion, upholding the conviction that obstruction of lawful government recruiting was not protected speech. Holmes wrote that Debs' purpose was to oppose not only war in general, but this war, and that the opposition was so expressed that its natural and intended effect would be to obstruct recruiting, thus meeting that bad tendency test again. And the third case we're going to be talking about is Abrams v. United States. Now, nine months later, in October 1919, the Supreme Court decided the case of Abrams v. United States. And in this case, the defendants urged factory workers who made munitions for the war to go on strike. Now, the court upheld the prosecution by a 7-2 to two vote. The majority upheld the case because of the similarity that this case had to Schenck and Debs. Now, Justice Clark, writing for the majority, wrote, The manifest purpose of such a publication was to create an attempt to defeat the war plans of the government of the United States by bringing upon the country the paralysis of a general strike, thereby arresting the production of all war munitions and other things essential to the conduct of the war. Now, I think somewhat surprisingly, Justice Holmes, uh, along with Justice Brandeis, dissented in this case, saying the case did not cross the clear and present danger test from Schenck and from Debs. They said, it is only the present danger of immediate evil or an attempt to bring it about that warrants Congress in setting a limit to the expression of opinion where private rights are not concerned. Holmes questioned whether the defendants had any intention to interfere with the war effort. It was evident from the beginning to the end that the only object of the paper was to help 
Russia and stop American intervention there against the popular government, not to impede the United States in a war it was carrying on. Holmes then gave us another memorable phrase uh, in First Amendment jurisprudence. The best test of truth is the power of a thought to get itself accepted in the competition of the market. And this law is still persecuting people who have done nothing wrong except tell the truth. This is the act that Julian Assange is charged with violating for daring to operate under the assumption of freedom of the press. This is also the law that Edward Snowden has been charged with uh, violating for deciding it might be worth having a public interest debate about whether or not the American people are all right with a rogue security state that are violating just about every fucking principle that once made this a great country. Now, if a new sedition law is passed, it seems safe to assume that it will be passed uh, much like the Sedition Act of 1918 was, as an amendment to the Espionage Act to broaden its powers. And this is why it behooves us to look back at how this act was used in the past, and I would especially encourage uh, progressives, uh, who are the people largely calling for this new expanded sedition law, to consider the fact that the law passed 100 years ago was signed by a progressive president, upheld by a progressive majority on the Supreme Court, and that it was then immediately used against progressives and socialists. So if progressives and other political groups find themselves aligned with libertarians in the particular sense of existing uh, outside the very narrow Overton window of Washington politics, as opposed to national politics, specifically Washington politics, where acceptable political views are pretty narrowed down exclusively to ideas that do not interfere with corporate agendas and the military-industrial complex? Do you really believe that sedition laws will only be used to prosecute those on the right that you disagree with? Now, we do have a number of things working in our favor at the moment, I believe. I think that there is a memory in our national psyche that still vaguely understands these sedition laws are dangerous weapons in the hands of insecure politicians. Sedition is the sort of crime that weak governments enforce against their citizens when the government is facing an existential threat or has convinced itself it is facing such a threat. Ironically, this memory may be the reason our insecure politicians are hesitating to pass such a law despite the military occupation of Washington, D.C., clearly showing that they believe they are facing some kind of existential threat. The other advantage is that few things cause more dissent as the weaponization of laws against speech that is disliked by people in power. This was certainly the case in 1798 during one of the most shameful, uh, just naked partisan grabs at power in our entire history. This is the Alien and Sedition Acts. And this also provides us with a great blueprint of how to fight these laws that came in the form of the Virginia and Kentucky Resolutions. Now, the First Amendment was ratified in 1791. It provides in part that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. Now, in this topic, we will study the original meaning of the freedom of speech. Now, in 1798, the Federalist-controlled Congress enacted the Sedition Act, and this law made it a crime to write, print, 
utter or publish any false, scandalous, and malicious writing against the government of the United States with the intent to defame the said government or bring them into contempt or disrepute or to excite against them the hatred of the good people of the United States. Now, the Adams administration used the Sedition Act to prosecute its most strident and vicious opponents in the Republican Party. At the time, Federalist-appointed judges dominated the federal judiciary. The Republican-controlled legislatures in Virginia and Kentucky issued resolutions declaring that the Sedition Act was unconstitutional. Now, James Madison is credited for authoring the Virginia Resolution, and Thomas Jefferson is generally credited with writing the Kentucky Resolution. But it did not claim the power to unilaterally nullify the Sedition Act. This is important to note. Instead, the Commonwealth enlisted the opinions of other like-minded states. Virginia also stated that the Commonwealth has the right and are duty-bound to interpose for arresting the progress of evil. So through this kind of interposition, the state governments intervened to assert the rights of its people against the assertions of power by the federal government. Now, interpose is different from nullification, though one can favor both interposition and nullification. The Kentucky Resolution, thought to be authored by Vice President Jefferson, did use the term nullification. However, it is unclear whether the proponents of the Kentucky Resolution believed that the federal law would become non-operational because one state believed it to be unconstitutional. Instead, the resolution authorized a formal protest against the Sedition Act's unconstitutionality. It provided in part that, quote, although this commonwealth as a party to the federal compact will bow to the laws of the union, yet it does at the same time declare that it will not now, nor ever hereafter, cease to oppose in a constitutional manner every attempt from what quarter soever offered to violate that compact, end quote. Now, in 1800, James Madison wrote a lengthy report that defended the Virginia Resolution from his critics. In his report, Madison explained that there is a difference between when a state declares a law unconstitutional and when a court declares a law unconstitutional. The declarations by states are expressions of opinion unaccompanied with any other effect than what they may produce on opinion, but exciting reflection. The expositions of the judiciary, on the other hand, are carried into immediate effect by force. The Virginia and Kentucky resolutions illustrate how the Constitution is interpreted outside of the courts. This is a very early example of a doctrine whose existence seems to be making a comeback that is known as departmentalism. Uh, and I have spoke about this uh, in another recent episode I did uh, about the Cooper v. Aaron case, and well as in a recent piece I had published in the Libertarian Institute called How Supreme is the Supreme Court. Uh, if you want to watch that episode or read that article, I will have links to both down in the description. Now, in the election of, eight, in the election of 1800, Jefferson narrowly defeated Adams in part due to the controversies surrounding the Sedition Act. The election came to be known as the Revolution of 1800, and as president, Jefferson had pardoned those who had been convicted and imprisoned under the Sedition Act. 
In Madison's report of 1800, he argued that the Sedition Act violated the First Amendment. His discussion illuminates two theories about the original scope of the right of freedom of speech. The first theory, that the government cannot impose what is called a prior restraint on the freedom of speech. In other words, people cannot be silenced in advance from speaking. But on this reading of the freedom of speech, people can still be punished for their speech after they speak, according to the common law. And in England, the right of freedom of speech could not be limited through prior restraints, uh, but it could be punished afterwards. So we will call this first theory the British theory of freedom of speech. Now, the second theory, uh, Madison said, is a distinctly American one, and it was defended at length by Madison in his report, where he contended that the British conception of the freedom of speech was aimed only at prior restraint by the crown. It did not limit the power of parliament because the British parliament was considered supreme. This is a principle called parliamentary sovereignty or parliamentary supremacy. And I'm actually going to be talking about this in my next video. I'm doing a video about uh, uh, sovereignty in England, someone requested. So that'll be coming up very soon. So if you're interested, just as a side note, if you're interested in that, be looking out in the next couple of days. I will be having an episode about that as well. But back to our point for today here. Madison contended that the U.S. Constitution rejected an idea of parliamentary supremacy. Under the American theory of popular sovereignty, Congress is also subject to the law of the Constitution, including the First Amendment. Therefore, federal legislation that punishes speech after the fact is also unconstitutional. Indeed, this is why the First Amendment begins with the words, Congress shall make no law. Now, under the American right of freedom of speech, then, it is unconstitutional for the government to constrain the exercise of free expression both before and after the fact. At the time, the Supreme Court did not rule on the constitutionality of the Sedition Act, but today courts have accepted Madison's interpretation as the original meaning of freedom of speech. For example, in the case of New York Times v. Sullivan in 1964, the Supreme Court favorably cited Madison and Jefferson's criticism of the Sedition Act, and Justice Brennan wrote in his opinion for a unanimous court that, quote, Although the Sedition Act was never tested in the court, the attack upon its validity has carried the day in the course of history, end quote. Now, I want to close here with a wonderful anecdote about Jefferson, possibly an anecdotal anecdote, uh, from Jefferson's term as president that I think captures perfectly the Jeffersonian commitment to free speech and free press. Now, in 1804, uh, the celebrated traveler, Baron Humboldt, called on the president one day. He was received into his office, and on taking up one of the public journals, which was laying right on the table there in the president's office, he was shocked to find that his columns were teeming with the most wanton, wanton abuse and licentious calumniations of the president. The baron threw the paper down with indignation, and he exclaimed, Why do you not have these fellows hung who dare to write these abominable lies? With this, the president smiled at the warmth of the baron 
and replied, What? Hang the guardians of the public morals? No, sir. Rather would I protect the spirit of freedom which dictates even that degree of abuse. Put that paper in your pocket, my good friend. Carry it with you to Europe. And when you hear anyone doubt the reality of American freedom, show them that paper and tell them where you found it. Sir, the country where public men are amenable to public opinion, where not only their official measures, but their private morals are open to the scrutiny and uh, animadversions of every citizen, is more secure from despotism and corruption than it could be rendered by the wisest code of laws or the best-formed constitution. He went on to say, Party spirit may sometimes blacken, and its erroneous opinions may sometimes injure, but, in general, it will prove the best guardian of a pure and wise administration. It will detect and expose vice and corruption, check the encroachments of power, and resist oppression. Sir, it is an abler protector of the people's rights than arms or laws. Now with this, the baron replied, But is it not shocking that your virtuous character should be defamed? Jefferson replied, Let their actions refute such libels. Believe me, virtue is not long darkened by the, by the clouds of calumny, and the temporary pain which it causes is indefinitely overweighed by the safety it ensures against degeneracy and the principles and conducts of public functionaries. When a man assumes a public trust, he should consider himself as public property and justly liable to the inspection and vigilance of public opinion. And the more sensibly he is made to feel his dependence, the less danger will there be of his abuse of power, which is that rock on which good governments and the people's rights have so often been wrecked. So, our liberty cannot be guarded but by a freedom of the press, nor that be limited without a danger of losing it. Where the press is free, every man is able to read and all is safe. To preserve the freedom, the human mind, and freedom of the press, and every spirit should be ready to devote itself to martyrdom. For as long as we may think as we will, and speak as we think, the condition of man will proceed in improvement. Well, that is going to do it for me here today on Categorical Imperatives. I want to thank you all so much for joining me here today. Uh, if you like the show, uh, you can go ahead and uh, hit that like button. Or if you dislike it, hit the dislike button e either way. Uh, leave me a comment. Let me know what you thought. Uh, don't forget to uh, put in your guests for the Woodrow Wilson What a Dick Right Game Show. So, um, anyways, I, I will be back very soon with another video uh, talking about uh, English sovereignty. That should be out in a couple of days. Uh, and so, uh, until then, this has been me. Uh, Lockean liberal or categorical imperatives talking about sedition and as always delenda asked Carthago <laughs>